My name's William Marler. I'm 23 years old, I'm an animator, I do stand-up comedy, and I have cystic fibrosis. In this podcast, I'll be helping share real stories from real people affected by CF. Hi, I'm Rue. Hi, my name is Pearl. Hi, my name is Charles Michael Duke. I have cystic fibrosis. And I'm coming to you straight from the lungs. Straight from the lungs. Straight from the lungs. Cystic fibrosis is no longer considered a childhood illness. A huge step on the journey to adulthood is getting a job, and it's a step that the majority of people with CF will be able to take. This is a big change from school or university though, because everything you do now impacts not just yourself, but your colleagues and the boss. tell them about it just in case like they got rid of me or something or didn't think I would be reliable. When I first spoke to Siobhan, she was working as a waitress at a garden centre. It was actually because I ended up being in a newspaper article after an event that I'd done and then they found out from that and the boss said, oh I hear you're not actually that well. I was like, oh sorry I didn't tell you. Obviously when you mention an illness people kind of I don't know, anxious I guess, but I'm really lucky because it's very close to where I live and the hours are really flexible as well and there's a really lovely team that works there. If I am in and not feeling too good, they are really supportive. It was only affected when I was in hospital and then my boss was really understanding. Beth was up front with her boss from the beginning. I told him when I got the job that I had CF and that I might be going in hospital and stuff like that and he was absolutely fine with it. He let me not work if I needed to stay in hospital. He knew straight away and he didn't have a full understanding of it really. So if I said, oh, I've got worse, I need to go in hospital, then he was quite sympathetic because he knew that it could get worse. So he was fine when it did. I've worked with a small group of people that had to have someone come in to do my job when I was in hospital and a much bigger team that could cope much easier without me. In both cases though, like Beth, I've told my bosses about CF straight away, so they know that unexpected days off are a possibility. Like Shaborn, Morgan didn't want to open up immediately. Actually, when I got this job, I didn't, but not because, like, I mean, everybody knew. Like, I ended up telling everybody after the fact. I just didn't tell them, like, whenever I was, like, getting interviewed or as soon as I got hired. Like, I didn't think anything of it just because... I was never really able to work growing up because in North Carolina, the market there for insurance is very, very crappy for health insurance, you know, all that kind of stuff. So basically, you have to be on like Medicaid, which is a state run insurance plan, and then like a SSI, what you get if you're sick. So it's, you know, you, you just get a check written to you every month to make up for the costs of you not being able to work. That's what I had to stick to for forever. And when you have that, like you can't work because they'll take portions of the money out from your check and then they review you to be like, hey, are you still sick? Which is the most ridiculous thing ever. Like, if I wasn't, I would definitely hand all this back to you guys. So I had to deal with that forever in North Carolina. Any job that I would have to work there, you have to do like the under the table jobs to where they like, you know, you get cash or something like that. A few years ago, Morgan made the move from North Carolina to California. You know, I was able to ditch the disability, ditch the Medicaid and all that, come out here and get good insurance out here. 
and start working. And that's why like, I didn't tell my employer out here that I had CF because it was like for the first time ever in my life, CF was an afterthought. It's obviously still a big deal. It's always going to be there, but it just wasn't this like controlling dominant thing. Because I mean, like other than me doing treatments and like the pills I take, like I'm in the gym every day, like here, I'm close enough to work to where I ride my bike. It's like two miles to like four miles round trip. I try to stay as active and as physically like fit and healthy as possible. So unless I'm sick, I don't really notice CF as much. So that's why like whenever I would like talk to employees at my work and it's like, yeah, you know, with my lung condition, they'd just be like, lung condition? And I was like, oh, I didn't tell you about that. I was like, whoops. But I told them and they were all really good about it. This isn't a, something that's kind of happened like overnight. It's been something that's been like going on for years, like my lungs slowly climbing and then or can be kind of boosted them up. For me, like I feel like I'll be okay. Like there is no reason for me like why I can't work. I'm healthy enough to work, as are Siobhan, Beth and Morgan. But cystic fibrosis is certainly not the same for everybody. Morgan mentioned Medicaid and SSI that can help patients in the US who are too ill to work. In the UK, we used to have DLA, but now there's a new system called Personal Independence Payment, or PIP. I had to apply for PIP a couple of years ago, and my social worker Ange helped me with the process. PIP was introduced a few years ago. It differs partly because it's awarded on a point system. When you're asked to reapply, you get a big form through. The questions cover the same sort of areas that DLA used to. But now when the assessors are looking at your information that you've given and the evidence that you've provided, they are measuring it against a scoring system. So let's say two points for this, two points for that. You have to achieve, I think, eight points to get a standard rate care. There are 12 different areas that you provide information for, including preparing food, eating and drinking, managing your treatments and moving around. So on the forms, the areas that we often find people with CF, we feel that they will probably score on, is around cooking, preparation of food, nutrition and managing treatments. That's a major focus, I think, when we're helping people with the forms, because another thing about PIP that is different to DLA, they used to consider how you were at your worst time. Now, very much the emphasis of PIP is the help that you need most of the time. So again and again, when you're having the assessment for it and you make a statement, you will immediately be asked, and how often does that occur? So it's very important that we talk about things that are generally the case rather than things that happen once or twice a year. After I wrote up the information and sent it off, I was invited for a face-to-face assessment. The whole aim of that, the way I see it, is to give as much information as possible and to help that person who's doing the assessment to record on their system because they um, input it to a computer while they're talking to you. There can be a lot of information and really the aim is to get them to record as much as possible of what you're saying and so therefore to give as much information as possible. 
And the information we want them to take away is the information that you've written on the form to start with. And of course, that's been a couple of months ago. So it's really important to have a copy of any page that's written on. I think a lot of people photograph that now just so they can then go over that before their meeting. And the information that's most important, we will have gone through. And it's very important to try and give that to people on the day. Now, assessors vary widely. You know, it's another one of those things. It's a two-way thing, isn't it? So it's important for the patient to be there and give as much information as possible. You can have anyone you like with you, and they are supposed to be able to contribute as well. The face-to-face assessor, the role is to elicit information from people, you know, encourage people to speak, and particularly with younger people, because the guidelines do recognise that it can often be more difficult for younger people to talk about themselves because of their stage of development, whatever. But that doesn't mean that that always happens. And a number of people have said to me that actually it's difficult to get the assessor to actually record the amount of information. All you can do is try and try and speak to the assessor at the time and build up a rapport with them. And they will vary. My face-to-face assessment ended up being really unpleasant. I felt very rushed and my assessor gave me barely any eye contact whatsoever. I went home thinking about all the things I forgot to mention and was left in a rubbish mood for the rest of the day. It is, for the majority of people, not a particularly good afternoon when they have to do the assessment. I mean, sometimes people have told me assessors have been very friendly. They've taken a lot of information. They think everything's going to be all right. And then they still get a result that says no points or something like that. So it is difficult to tell, actually. But it sounds like that was a horrible experience for you. And, you know, I do know a lot of other people that would absolutely agree with you. So... After a process that lasted months and months, I finally got a letter back. Dear Mr Marler, I can't award you personal independence payment. In total, I scored nothing. Absolutely nothing. Zero points. But I was fully aware that this might happen, so I then applied for my case to be reconsidered. My information was then reviewed by a separate person, at which point I was awarded PIP. However, this time around, I scored points for preparing food, washing and bathing, toilet needs, dressing and undressing and moving around. I still scored nothing for managing treatments, despite the long list of tablets, nebulizers, and physiotherapy that I sent to them. You've probably guessed by now that I think it's a ridiculous system with many flaws and a horrible process to go through. Saying that, I am lucky that, unlike some people, I didn't need to take it to court. That's a really gruelling process because at that point, any benefit that has been received is stopped. And I think appeals at the moment are taking about nine months to come through. Not only is DLA PIP money stopped, but also that has knock-on effects for other benefits, like it can affect their working tax credit or their council tax or, you know, whatever. It has a lot of knock-on effects. It's very serious for people. But PIP is a very good benefit. When you've got it, it's a very good benefit because it doesn't matter what else is going on in your life in relation to work or anything else. It is just a bit of income that then you can count on for a number of years. I was very fortunate to have a job lined up for me as soon as I left uni. 
I was also very fortunate that I got to work with some really great people, like Sam. We met up for lunch on one of those rare English days where the sun is in the sky. Such quite a nice day. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful, actually. Nice breeze as well, which is helpful. Uh, so, how did you, not being the boss, find out about my CF? Yeah, I, I suspect it was when, because Robin and I would have regular sort of conversations about you know, the business and where it was at um, and what we needed. And we clearly identified that we did need a motion graphic animator like you. Um, so it probably came up in sort of the first conversation that we had about that, really. And the reason that Robin knew that to be able to pass it on to you is because I was very upfront with him. That just naturally probably led me to mention how that could affect, you know, day-to-day -day work stuff. Um, probably at the end of the interview, some sort of like, you know, just to be upfront, really. I guess. Um, we had quite a relaxed communication system where I could just give you a text or something like that. There was no sort of, we didn't clock in or out. Yeah, so you would drop me a text or, or give me a call, or if I wasn't in the office, you would ring ring the office and speak to, I don't know, one of our, one of our colleagues and just let them know. So in, in, in video production and animation, it was more like we would have a deadline that we'd have to reach, and that would happen, and it would be, okay, well, Will's not in today, or he's going to be in slightly later, and you, you took as much responsibility for that as, as the rest of us, and it was more like, okay, well, when is that work going to be done so that we can still hit the deadline? So that sometimes involved, um, instead of just taking some time off in terms of holiday, it was, well, because of the fact that this time is precious, making that back up yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah, 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 exactly. And you were always, you were always really good at that. It was always, oh, you know, going to be in an hour, hour too late or whatever. I'll just do it at the end of the day. And, you know, that was absolutely, that was fine. Um, I think we got into quite a good working rhythm where we had quite a good understanding you you understood what was needed needed to be done um, and you know we understood that you do live with this condition and you know we need that needs to be managed accordingly and we just go work around that really it still didn't become this big thing it was just we had it in the back of our minds so if anything did come up you know we were just so glad to have someone with your skill set um, and with your talent to be honest you know that uh, it was just a thing that we had to work around in the same way that you know you work around the parent who has young kids or you you know um, or someone who's in, in the process of moving house you know there's just all these life events happen you just have to work around them and, and manage accordingly and you know as far as I was concerned and, and you know uh, my other colleague who you reported to you know it was just a thing you had to work around and that's fine really yeah, I had quite a good run whilst I was there. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I'm very, uh, I'm very pleased with the work that we did together. I think, yeah, it was great. I was at my job with Sam for nine months, and like a lot of other people, didn't want CF to stop me working. However, I eventually realised that full-time work wasn't for me. It was too much of a strain on my health, and I found it difficult to balance a good exercise routine alongside it. A couple of years ago, I went self-employed and now have full control of my hours and can fit work within everything else I have to deal with. Cara also took her career into her own hands. The CC horse training started when I was 18 and I first moved out here. I got a job working at a horse breeding farm, basically, and I was training their horses. I was selling their horses, working for them. And I noticed a lot of people who came 
to see horses that I was selling. They were interested in me and my riding ability and oftentimes would ask, hey, can you come and work with my horse? Hey, could you come give me lessons? And at the time, I was so preoccupied working for this one breeding farm, I didn't have time to do my own thing. And basically, after enough people showed interest, I decided it was probably time I just went off on my own and did my own thing. I could make more money and I could do it on my own schedule. I like it a lot. The best thing is just being able to do it on my own schedule. You know, it's the type of thing where if I find out I need to be admitted for two weeks, I can just plan my training around it. I can not do lessons for two weeks and I can push training off and then I can pick right back up where I left off. The flexibility wasn't the only plus side to Cora's venture, though. The doctors at the time that I was diagnosed said that they felt it was a contributing factor as to why I was able to stay as healthy as I was for so long. Some people say that, you know, the bouncing up and down while you're riding can help break up the mucus in the chest. And other people just say it's great because it's, you know, it's exercise. It's something physical. So, yeah, I really feel that it helps a lot. It turns out you're most at risk of getting CF if you're a white male. And I thought, oh God, not another burden we have to carry. (laughs) While some people might worry that getting a job and going to work might be a detriment to their CF, it was really interesting to hear how Cara's day job actually benefited her health. We heard earlier from Siobhan, who, when I first spoke to her a couple of years ago, was working at a garden centre and getting ready to go to university. Since then, though, her plans have changed. I deferred my place at Gloucestershire University for a year because I've wanted to study multimedia journalism and I thought it was the only way to go because of everything that I do social media-wise and creating videos for raising awareness of cystic fibrosis. I was just like, oh maybe journalism is the way to go down this route because it's you know sharing stories um getting awareness out there and then I kind of got halfway through my gap year and thought I don't know if this is really for me um I don't know if I'm the right person and a lot of people describe journalism as being quite a cutthroat job quite intense and I think I was just became very concerned that or maybe this is not for me Last year, I was really unwell with the flu, and my clinical team got talking with the youth involvement worker and said, we think we know someone that could be very interested in the work that you do and the youth involvement group that developed. We met, we spoke, um, and I was really keen to get involved. Also, I did some public speaking for an event they held. People came in, did a little talk about what they do for young people, how they try to help, how they try to improve services for clinical staff that were at this event, seeing how they could take some advice from that and how they can support young people a bit better. I did a presentation on living with cystic fibrosis. So although Shaborn originally planned to use her community voice to become a journalist, she's now found that volunteering fits her much better. I was interested to hear what sort of work she was involved in. So the group ranges from 11 to 21 years old and at the moment we've got like a really good group going. We held an event last year in October which coincided with World Mental Health Day and it was an event to raise awareness of mental health and really try to break down that stigma of it's okay to 
talk about your mental health because it is just as important as your physical health and it was a really really successful event we had loads of people come from the Bristol community and we've also been involved in actually getting all wards young people friendly so when the ward has completed this they get a certification that says this ward is now young people friendly and it's basically just staff you know making sure that they're supporting young people giving the care that you know, young people want and just being there for them. Something that I've seen become much more common in recent years is people's work priorities switching from how well a job pays to how fulfilling it is. Volunteering is just such an amazing thing. Like you can get such a rewarding feeling from it and it's so varied. So there's so much opportunity. There's always that chance to grow, develop, try new things, go into different routes. I think it's just that passion to help others. Like The reason I volunteer for the NHS is because it's a service that has been there for my whole life. So it's my way of giving back and saying thank you and just seeing what I can do to improve it for people in the future, as with others in the youth involvement group. Some of them also go there because they're looking to do work in the profession when they're older, whether that be becoming a doctor or a nurse. And yeah, I think I do it because it is a passion of mine and I'm Assistant for Racist Trust Ambassador. So, you know, it's just things that are very close to my heart. And I think to be able to get a career in that route would just mean the absolute world because it really is something I enjoy. I get a real buzz out of it. And yet you meet so many new people, you hear their stories. I just love all that stuff. I think it's really nice to get to know people and what they've been through. And yeah, it's just a really lovely job to be involved in. I'm an animator, and I've been fortunate enough to work on some really exciting projects over the years. Probably the biggest one so far, though, was the opening sequence to the 2016 Brit Awards which was broadcast on ITV. My name is Ravi Deeper. I'm a professor in moving images and photography at Birmingham City University. After seeing my animation work, Ravi decided to invite me into his professional team, joining the likes of fashion designer Gareth Pugh, musician Stuart Price, and Ravi's co-director and choreographer Wayne McGregor. What I really wanted to do, because it was such a high-profile thing, and it was also a very fast turnaround thing, normally I would take this thing out and bring in a kind of crack, kind of high-end team to do it. In this case, it actually made more sense to kind of utilise the university and the resources that offered, not only towards the benefit of the project in keeping everything kind of together and in one place more, but also because of the opportunity that it might afford students as well. We did some tests here at the university in some of the studios, the photograph studios. I wanted to explore a specific technique of recording images in certain ways using stills cameras that would create a kind of moving image animation. I also wanted to just experiment with lighting as well. This is in advance of us going to the studios in London. So the university was an important kind of laboratory, if you like, for just testing out a few ideas in advance. Then more of the major filming happened in London and we took some of the students uh, like yourself down there as well to be part of those experiences. And then you're invited to come with us and help with the final editing and technical orientation of the work at O2 Arena, which was, again, a great experience for all of us. The whole project was so exciting, and I learned a huge amount along the way. I was really grateful to have been involved at all the different stages. I'll never forget when we were setting up at the O2 Arena and we did the first dress rehearsal. After three weeks of staring at screens in tiny editing suites, 
and being very detached from the final product, we got to see the fruits of our labour performed live in front of us. As the physical power of the music shook my heart, and I looked at our work for the first time, thinking, we did that, I genuinely nearly burst into tears. As you can imagine, the project was very full-on, including many long days. This is fairly common in the media industry, but given I had to fit in my treatment routine alongside these hours, it ended up being very tiring. Fortunately, Ravi and Wayne both understood and appreciated this. There's certain times when obviously you need to do your kind of medication in the morning and in the evening. Also, your energy level is going to be slightly different to ours. And so that means that we have to be careful to make sure you're not overdoing it, basically, and to make sure you're operating within the parameters that are not only comfortable, but also safe. All that means is really is that once you become aware of that, you have to just reorganise your time slightly differently. Sometimes we could see that you were getting tired, so I think I can remember saying to you, only do what you can do, basically. There's another incident as well, actually, where we needed to do a final masking of the material. I was thinking about doing that in an evening at the hotel, but it was clear that you were getting quite tired by then, so you made the suggestion, you know, it'd be much better for me to work on this with you in the morning. Absolutely, that's fine, that's, that's what we did. It's better to be fresh and do things in short bursts rather than do long things where everyone gets knackered. And sometimes you have to push through that, depending on what the situation is. Even though Ravi and Wayne were aware of how CF could interfere with my energy levels, they never treated me differently as a result. I always felt like a valued member of their team. The thing to remember here is that it doesn't matter what kind of disability you've got, whether it's physical, mental, or if there are kind of labelling on you because of the colour of your skin or your background. These things are completely irrelevant because if you've got great qualities where you can really bring something and bring great passion and enthusiasm to a project, all of these things become completely irrelevant. I mean, I suffered a lot of racial abuse when I was younger because I'm from a mixed race kind of background. It teaches you to be determined in getting out of potentially bad situations and also kind of proving who you are, proving your own worth to yourself in a way, but also don't waste time with people that don't respect you. When we're talking about someone like yourself who suffers from this condition, for me, and I think for a lot of people as well, it won't be an issue and it would never be an issue. So people with conditions should never feel like they can't be empowered to work in whatever field they want. Personally, I'd never be happy to settle with a job that I didn't feel worth doing. I think it's partly because having CF makes me more aware of the precious time I have on Earth. I want to make sure I leave a mark on the world. It's really great to hear so many others find a career they're passionate about too. The same is also true for Katie, although at work, she's Fabian, Lucius, Tammy, Ariel. It's like very physically demanding being an actor, which is part of the reason why I got into it, was because I felt like... I was really doing something with my body. It wasn't just this diseased thing. It was actually an instrument that I could learn how to use and that I could take action with because I think theater especially has this wonderful gift of being able to connect to audiences and tell stories and create empathy about situations, about culture and times in people's lives. And I really loved having that direct connection with the audience. You know, I felt like I could do something that was meaningful. And that was something that I was good at and I could get better at. And that's that's part of the thing that I really love about acting is there's always something I don't know and there's always more I can discover. Selfishly, 
I think it's a way for me to have more lives in one because as an actor, I get to take on these characters and experience different facets of life that I, as Katie Osborne, have never experienced. But I can go into these roles and develop an understanding and um, take action in these other things. It's almost like packing more lives into like one life. <laughs> a huge part of Katie's job is using her voice and therefore her lungs. With the vocal training, I learned different forms of breath. I learned like different places where I could place my voice for like a resonator and how that would relate to the audience. I learned which ones were tougher or which ones were easier. And that's part of the actor's journey is like, you know, because all actors, regardless of CF or not, we get sick. And like even putting your placement of voice in a different place will help you carry that on I remember being in voice class and getting frustrated a lot because I felt like my body was inadequate but then like keeping at the work I learned how to like use my lungs and like even like do expansions in my rib cage that I didn't know was possible so I just like understood my breath a lot more as an actor which was just a gift and something very freeing because sometimes I feel like I have less control over my breath and being able to like take that back and even with CF, like discover just other ways to do this. It was very freeing. When Katie was telling me about her acting, especially how it's like having more lives than one, I wondered whether it was a way for her to leave her CF behind for a bit. I think when I first got into acting, I definitely used it as an escapism to escape my situation. But the more I grow as an artist and the more I grow as a person, I realized that and I've always known this, but acting is not pretending, it's not make-believe. It is living truthfully under an imaginary circumstance. So my job as an actor is to be the most truthful in a particular situation that I possibly can. And I find that I have to be more conscious of my CF almost more than ever when I'm on stage. So I'm not going to cough in the middle of the line because guess what? My character does not have cystic fibrosis. So like, I have to like work with my body even more to find a way to deliver my line or to portray this character and it's not really getting around it it's just me learning how to use my body in a better more meaningful way and I think having cystic fibrosis helps me as an actor because having CF you kind of have to grow up a little more quickly you have a deeper understanding of life itself because you're faced with this reality that, well, your life could be shorter, or when you're really sick, like, you're just in that situation of being sick, and it's hard sometimes to get outside of that place mentally. And I feel like when you have CF, like, you have to make these big emotional and mental leaps at a very young age. And because I have, like, the understanding of that, I think it really aids me as an actor into like be able to empathize and understand other lives or other aspects of life. Straight from the Lungs is produced by me, William Marler, and recorded at Birmingham City University. Thank you to Shaborn, Beth, Morgan, Ange, Cara, Ravi, and Katie. As always, Thanks to Sam Lewis for his keen ear, ever helpful advice, and for putting up with all the ice cream vans interrupting our conversation. The beautiful music you heard was by Ben Wetherill. 
make sure to head over to our website, lungspodcast.co.uk, where you can find extra breaths from me and my guests, which is all the bits that didn't make it into the main episode, and illustrations by Vicky Neville. In the next episode, we'll be talking about clinic visits, hospital stays, and the risks of cross-infection. Until then, thanks for listening. We are sat in St Paul's Square. <laughs> that radio screw man is oh, going off again. <laughs> it's anti-social now. No one's buying ice creams, mate. They would have bought it already. It's not even that hot a day. <laughs> Too cold, if anything. I was thinking that when it came out. It's, like, it's not even the right temperature. There we go. Okay, perfect opportunity. Okay.